All right, well, good to have everybody back out here. I'm going to open up with a little uh, show of hands poll here real quick. Okay, so simple question. Um, so how many of you, show of hands, believe that America has a better than even chance, better than even being defined as 50% or better, of being more advanced technologically 100 years from now than now? How many would say better than even the technology is better 100 years from now? Most people think that. And if I were to say, what about um, a fair chance? So 25% or better. So even a lower standard, better technology. Yeah, pretty much everybody has said, that's, that's true. Okay. Same, same logic. I'm going to ask a little different question. How many of you believe that America has a better than um, even chance, one in two or better, of being more virtuous 100 years from now than today? Better than even chance. More, but from a Christian worldview. Okay, okay. Christian worldview. Yep. So I got, I got one. Yeah, so better, so like a couple. All right, now, what about 25%? So like, there's a reasonable chance that it's more virtuous? Okay. Oh, certainly. Well, because that's, that's the inverse. If it's a 25%. Oh, I think, yeah, I think it could be less virtuous. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so we found, just as I would have expected, we're more optimistic about the growth of technology, relatively speaking, than we are about the growth of virtue and the church, at least in our own country. All right. So hopefully I'm going to give you a little bit of hope today. Okay. We'll see. A little hope, a little challenge. We're going to talk about the right side of history. Uh, and the lie we're unpacking is the imagined invincibility of progressive secularism. Okay, the imagined invincibility of the sort of leftist worldview. All right, so let's start unpacking some lies. I'm going to give you five points here. Point number one, the lie that our culture believes, is that secular humanism provides an unbroken path of progress. I'll give you a, a quotation here from an actor that I like because he's Captain America. Chris Evans, but he also uh, voiced Buzz Lightyear in a new Disney film, and that included a gay kiss. And so this actor is defending that. And this is what he says. The real truth is that those people, those people as you, are idiots. Every time there's been social advancement as we wake up, the American story, the human story, is one of constant social awakening and growth, and that's what makes us good. There's always going to be people who are afraid and unaware and trying to hold on to what was before, but those people die off like the dinosaurs. I think the goal is to pay them no mind, to march forward and embrace the growth that makes us human. So standard left of center perspective on you. You're going to die out like the dinosaurs for your traditional values. Put this in the words of a Texas high schooler, uh, a boy who was punished for violating the, nail, uh, the dress code by wearing nail polish. Okay, so he speaks to the, the student count or the, the, the school board, and he says, you're going to hear some expressive individualism in here too, but also this right side of history language. Why is, it, uh, why is it against the dress code for a man to be comfortable with his masculinity and defy the gender norms society has imposed upon us? Why is it harmful for me to wear nail polish if it's not harmful for girls to wear? Why is it harmful for males? Wilkinson went on to explain how his school's discriminatory policy failed to create a safe space for students looking to be accepted for, quote, 
who they are. It's not too late to be on the right side of history, and I dare ask you guys to join, he said. I understand that you guys have traditional values, and I respect that, but to get respect, you also have to give it. America is progressing. We're staying up to date with trends. We're modernizing as a whole, and nothing will stop that. We're all supposed to be equal, not having our freedom of expression suppressed, not having our voices not heard because grown-ups are taking three steps back instead of forward. Okay. So the left is convinced of this. There is an inevitable momentum behind what they believe, and it will not be stopped. It's just the future. Okay. But I'm going to point out that the left conflates their worldview with the advancement of science and technology. And science and technology has advanced pretty steadily, uh, really over the past probably 500 years. Um, and the main reason that science and technology expands so reliably is because it provides very good feedback and very rapid feedback. If you build a computer or a rocket that crashes, it's very obvious very quickly that it's not a good computer, not a good rocket. And you can't stay in the computer or rocket making business very long if you can't make some that work, right? So there's very good rapid feedback. But when it comes to a lot of ideas, a lot of ideas, even if they're really bad ideas, like, you know, Soviet-style communism, it still takes 70 years for that idea to collapse under its own weight, right? So we have a lot better feedback in science, and that's why science, um, we've learned to have some trust in science, and I think rightly so. Um, but the secularists have also expanded the language of science into fields where the scientific method is not actually that helpful or isn't used appropriately, even if it could be helpful there. So many of the social sciences in particular, all of the soft sciences, are not scientific at all. Things like political science, gender studies, might I say. So what they're offering you is opinion cloaked in the veneer of science. So let me give you maybe a metaphor. Let's imagine you have a high school football team and it's not very good, kind of loses a lot, right? And uh, you decide to call that team the Kansas City Chiefs. And then you're like, the Kansas City Chiefs are amazing. They won the Super Bowl. They're the best team in the nation. We're conflating language here. We're talking about two different things. Science versus a lot of the things that are called science, it's simply not the same thing. So I have enough... Uh, training in statistical analysis that I can look at a study and I can tell you in about five minutes whether that study is complete garbage. And about half of them are in the soft sciences. But don't take my word for it. Look up the reproducibility crisis. Okay, so the reproducibility crisis, if something is true uh, and it's been studied in a lab or whatever, it should be able to be reproduced by another scientist. So there are meta-studies out there, studies of studies, that try to reproduce large numbers of um, soft science, in particular, studies. I read one in the psychology field. They failed to reproduce 60% of the psychology peer-reviewed um, published articles that they studied. So the soft sciences are in a bit of a crisis as they try to use the scientific method, but it's not working out very well. Um, so not knowing that half of science is bunk is kind of dangerous. And there are two different traps that we fall into on different sides of the political aisle. So the left tends to fall into the trap of everything that has the language and the label of science. They're like, we have to believe it. It's the science. You know, capital S, the science. But the right 
okay, they're a little more skeptical and they're like, yeah, I don't think everything that has that label is true. But then sometimes they fall into the opposite trap and they're like, I just don't believe anything that has a label science on it. And then what do they fall for? They fall for age old snake oil salesmen that are selling, you know, cures for psychological or physical cures or whatever that just have no rigor behind them at all. Like the scientific method that came out of a Western Christian worldview is a very valuable tool. And I don't want us to throw that away just because some people are misusing it and mislabeling it. So ironically, rather than being able to use the scientific method to navigate the world, the progressives have just sort of corrupted the image of science and made us trust science less, which is, I think, a shame. Second lie that uh, the, the world has in this area is that all that is old is inferior. All that is old is inferior. There's this, there's a slogan that tradition is peer pressure from the dead, right? And obviously we need to resist peer pressure from the dead, but this comes from the belief that humans have no fixed nature and humans just change in response to circumstances. So whatever they learned in ancient Greece does not matter at all because humans were different. 3,000 years ago. But if, on a Christian worldview, humans do have a fixed nature, then stuff they learned 3,000 years ago, some of that might still apply. Um, not according to this internet meme, though, that says, this is your periodic reminder that the U.S. Constitution was written by a handful of rich dudes who didn't know what atoms were, practiced medicine based on the four humors, had no idea that dinosaurs existed, used guns that fired four rounds a minute, regarded women as literal property, and would have considered the light bulb to be pure witchcraft. This is, this is, this is on the internet. Um, now, some of that's just not true, but we'll set that aside. So the assumption is if you understand dinosaurs and atoms, you're going to be able to build a better human government. That doesn't follow, right? Because understanding atoms really doesn't have much to do with understanding human nature. And a lot of things that existed in, in olden times they had a good understanding of human nature, right? So another uh, extension of this is that any evil in the past is regarded as just an outgrowth of ignorance, and we would never commit any evils in our time. So just by virtue of living in this century, we know that nothing we're doing is evil because we are not ignorant, because we know about dinosaurs and atoms. <laughs> so, so clearly, we're uh, clear as a driven snow. C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery. He has a great quotation. He says, chronological snobbery is the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age. And the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. But you must find why it went out of date. Was it ever refuted or did it merely die away as fashions do? If the latter, this tells us nothing about its truth or falsehood. From seeing this, one passes to the realization that our own age is also a period, and certainly has, like all periods, its own characteristic illusions. They are likeliest to lurk in those widespread assumptions which are so ingrained in the age that no one dares to attack or feels it necessary to defend them. So chronological snobbery leaves us blind to the errors of our own age. And I think the church falls prey to this sometimes as well in our own doctrine. I grew up in a doctrinal camp that believed a bunch of things that were invented in the 1900s. And church has been around a lot longer than, than the 1900s. So if most of your doctrine is 100 years old, 
I mean, you can try to justify it in the Bible, but it's suggestive that maybe that's not true, right? So we should be concerned about where our ideas come from and, and how long a lineage they have in the church. Not that everything old is necessarily true, but it's a positive sign if an idea has survived the test of time. The third lie is that as reason advances, faith inevitably declines. As reason advances, science advances, faith inevitably declines. Now, this comes from the view that faith is the opposite of knowledge. And if knowledge is expanding, therefore, faith must be contracting. Now, there's the argument made that God was once used to explain lightning, and now we understand more about electricity, so we don't need God anymore to explain lightning. Now, there's some truth to that. But at the same time, there was a, a famous sort of anti-Christian who predicted that 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antique collector. That was Voltaire in 1776. In a beautiful twist of irony, his house ended up being used as a Bible Society headquarters <laughs> um, about 100 years after his death. So there are natural phenomena in which this holds true, that some people used to just say, ah, God does it, we don't know how, and we know more about it now, and so we don't say it, at least not in that way. Um, however, to apply that to all questions of life is to make a category error. Category error. So what's a category error? Um, it's like asking what color is the number seven, or how much does happiness weigh, or can we determine our values and virtues as a society scientifically? That's just as silly as asking what color is the number seven. So because these things are in totally different categories, it's like saying that, um, you know, telescopes are getting better and better. We can see farther and farther away. So pretty soon we're going to know all there is to know about grammar. <laughs> no, that doesn't work. And science can advance as much as it wants to, but it will never be able to answer questions of purpose and virtue. So just because reason and science is advancing does not mean that the scope and the lanes for faith are going to shrink. There are still a lot of big questions that a telescope will not answer. And even a really good microscope won't answer. There are still questions outside of that. The fourth lie is that demographic trends mean an end to the Judeo-Christian worldview in America. Demographic trends mean an end to our worldview. So, now this stuff is true, okay? According to Gallup, fewer Americans believe in God, so it's down to 81% of Americans who say, answer the question, yes, I believe in God. Fewer see the Bible as literally true. 20% answer a question that way. Um, and a higher percentage than ever identify as having no religious affiliation. Uh, 21%. Although that number has actually plateaued over the past five years. That's actually held steady for a little while. Um, it is also true that the kids are further left-wing than they used to be. Um, millennials are starting to come back to church in line with other generations who tend to come back to church when they're a little older, but fewer of them were going to church in the first place. So when it settles out, there will probably be fewer millennials in church on current trends. And of course, you can look at um, the sort of extreme end of this. You look at the percentage of people by generation that identify as, and I've learned all of the, all the letters now, 2SLGBTQAIP+. That's the whole set uh, as of today. Um, so about 4% of Gen X 
identifies as LGBT, um, about 10% of millennials, and about 20% of Gen Z identifies as LGBT. The most common uh, identification is bisexual, uh, by far, uh, in all generations. Which is convenient because it allows you to do what you probably have a natural inclination to do, but then you can also identify as a sexual minority. So that's, uh, that's, that's the way we see the trend going. And we'll, we'll address that a little later on when we get to the truth. But the fifth lie, the fifth and final one that I have for you, is that the problems of our society can only be solved by an expanding government. Problems of our society can only be solved by an expanding state. So let me just ask you, what kinds of problems do you think our culture says, eh, only a big government can fix this one? What are some examples? Homelessness. Homelessness. Yeah, I got that one. Healthcare. Don't need a big government to fix that one. Immigration. Yep. Um, so I have global warming, climate change. That's one the culture is pretty obsessed that we need a very big government to solve this very big problem. Um, and the other ones you mentioned, poverty and homelessness. We need to make a bigger welfare state, mental health and drug crisis. We need socialized medicine, overpopulation globally. A lot of people on the left are concerned about that. So about 54% of Americans want the government to do more to solve our problems, about 83% of Democrats. Um, but interestingly, even as we want the government to do more as a society, we also trust them less than we ever have. <laughs> um, in 1964, the percentage of people who trusted the federal government, who answered a question like, do you generally trust the federal government? 1964, 77% of Americans trusted the federal government. Today, that is down to 20% of Americans. But I mean, think about that. Like half of Democrats don't trust the federal government. Um, so why is it that we want the government to solve our problems even though we don't trust them? Simple solutions to complicated problems. Have someone else do it for Yeah. And I would point out that we don't have any other institutions left in our culture. Like we don't have an, a robust, truly traditional family. We don't have robust communities. We don't have churches for the majority of people, right? So the, what else is there? I guess the government's going to have to solve it, even though we don't trust them. <laughs> it's kind of a sad state to be in. So let's talk about a little bit of truth. Five points here as well. Point number one, reality has a veto on bad ideas. Reality has a veto on bad ideas. Bad ideas come and go at a generational pace. There are a thousand and one bad ideas from the ancient past that we don't even have foggy cultural memories of. So many versions of animism and paganism and pantheism, which very little of it survives at all uh, to the modern day. But if we just look closer to modern times, if we just go to the Enlightenment and onward, let's see how many of the bad ideas of the inevitably winning progressives have stuck around generation after generation. So the Enlightenment had two strains. It had a Christian strain and an anti-Christian strain. So on the Christian side, you had people like Bacon and Locke and Descartes and Montesquieu. Those people, their ideas did stick around. But then you also have Rousseau and Voltaire, and then ultimately Nietzsche kind of followed from that. That 
bad strain, so really the progressive strain, led to a very, very unhealthy French Revolution. The French Revolution collapsed within a decade, led to an emperor, Napoleon, which led to decades of Napoleonic imperial wars across Europe, right? So we had that. And then this loss of purpose, which Nietzsche pointed out, like, we don't have a purpose anymore because we killed God. Um, it led to a desire to replace the, the, the longing in the human heart for purpose with romantic nationalism. Okay, we just have to serve our great country, whether that's France or Germany. It was very popular in the late 1800s, early 1900s. A lot of wars based around that culminated in World War I, very much driven by this philosophy of romantic nationalism. And then there was a desire to perfect mankind as a race. So the progressives in the early 1900s were very concerned with um, how are we going to help the species evolve in a, in a positive way. So in America, that led to forced sterilization of over 70,000 people, many different federal and state and local level policies. People like Teddy Roosevelt were on board with that. People like Margaret Sanger, of course, founded Planned Parenthood, very big into eugenics. We've got to clear the undesirables out of our society. In Europe, that led to the rise of a philosophy called German National Socialism or Nazism. They were going to get the undesirables out of the human race, right? So this was the progressive idea of the past. And actually, some of the Nazis who were tried at Nuremberg used as their defense a lot of quotations from American progressives a generation earlier who had been doing this stuff in the U.S. They said, you guys did it too. That was one of the defenses they used at Nuremberg. So that kind of died away, but it led to a belief that scientific governance was going to solve mankind's problems. And so we planned the war and now we're going to plan the peace. So you had the Soviets, of course, they had their whole communist system, but all across the Western world, people were turning to highly centralized planning to fix all their problems. There's actually a story of, um, I believe it was in South Africa. They were kind of neutral at the time and they weren't, they weren't really on the West side or on the Soviet side. They were trying to figure out which way they should go. So they brought down economists from both countries to advise them. And half of them said, you should pursue capitalism. And half of them said, you should pursue communism. Well, it turns out that the, the ones that came from communist countries were the ones that said you should pursue capitalism because <laughs> they, they had seen how badly this worked out in, uh, in Mother Russia. So we had that idea. Now that, that kind of faded away in a, in a sense. Like we don't have it to the same degree. Um, to go back a little bit, progressives took over the American schools, and thanks, Flav, for, for this book recommendation, The uh, Battle for the American Mind. They went all out to take over the schools in the 1900s, and they were trying to replace God and the Western Christian ethos with something that could unite Americans, that was pluralistic and more friendly. So they came up with um, a worldview of just sort of generic, watered-down nationalism and American exceptionalism, and we're a very special country, and we invented freedom and democracy in 1776, and we created it out of absolutely nothing instead of out of a 3,000-year tradition of Western civilization that had been slowly cultivating these good ideas, right? And so they gave us the Pledge of Allegiance, actually, which they started they brought the Pledge of Allegiance into schools. It actually originally did not contain the words under God. Those were added in the 50s by some conservatives. But they were trying to get kids to not identify as Western Christians, but just identify as kind of like America. It's, it's good here. So you had this watered-down American nationalism. Well, that didn't survive. 
right? I mean, now conservatives are like, let's go back to that, back when we took God out of schools and we replaced it with the Pledge of Allegiance, right? It, this bears repeating. The, the things, the errors that we pine for are often the, like the last generation of the left's bad ideas. And conservatives try to take us one step back instead of following the long tradition that gave us our civilization in the first place, because we lost sight of it. Things like the nuclear family, which we, we think is the original family, which it's actually not, which you know, people like me are learning this for the first time, right? So eventually, of course, we know that that American progressive sort of worldview, it fell out of favor, and then we got this worldview of, um, of tolerance and multiculturalism and moral relativism that was prevalent in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and then that starts to go out of favor and it starts to get replaced with this sort of cultural Marxist. Um, everybody is divided into two classes, oppressor oppressed, and that we talked about at length. So we've already seen in our lifetime a major shift from moral relativism to expressive individualism. These ideas come and go every generation. And I would, I would actually add to that, that that the only thing we can really say with confidence is that the ideas 50 years from now will be different than the ones that we're being told we all have to buy into right now. They're going to change. They always do. And the leaders of the left in the past, people like Marx and Freud, they're looked on by modern progressives as pretty kooky. And they say a lot of things that if you dig out what they actually said, they'll make them cringe, right? Whereas we don't cringe about what Christian leaders said 100 years ago, right? I mean, you might find something, but in general, we're like, yeah, we're in that same stream of thought. They have to keep changing out the stream of thought. Not to mention, there are other things that it's hard to predict in trends. The generic term for this is a black swan, an event like a war or a pandemic or a revival things that they don't really fit into your trend line, but they actually shape history quite a bit. It's very difficult to tell when they're going to happen, but they do happen. Actually, the Black Death in the 1300s has a lot to do with why feudalism ended. Because so many peasants died from the Black Death that the balance of power between the landlords and the serfs shifted. There were fewer serfs than were needed, so now the serfs could go shop around for another manor another feudal lord to work for, and then they started to get a little more voice and a little more power. Um, interestingly, Russia made very draconian laws to stop people from moving around, and they managed to retain feudalism all the way up until like the 1840s, when serfdom was eliminated in Russia. That's why they were ripe for a communist revolution, because they, they missed out on uh, the whole, <laughs> the whole uh, industrialization era. But the significance of that is it's just it's easy to look and say, oh, well, we can tell what the future is going to be because here's this straight line that's taking us in this direction. But historically, that's not always the case, right? That the, Things like the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, they come along and you didn't expect them. Let's go to the second point of truth here. Truth is refined by time. Truth is refined by time. So the longer an idea has continuously survived, continuously, the more likely it is to be true. It doesn't mean every old idea is true, but in general, we are the spoiled child of history. So we look around at all this stuff around us, which would have blown the minds of most people and most of human civilization, and we just take it for granted. 
we don't wonder why we're in a climate-controlled room that we all drove to in our cars, right? But there was a whole lot that got us here. And um, what, mis- what secularists mistakenly claim as the unstoppable march of a generic progress is actually the unbroken advancement of God's kingdom. It's the unbroken advancement of the Judeo-Christian worldview that has, in fact, built our civilization. Um, great book called Dominion by a, a historian named Tom Holland, who is not the Spider-Man actor. <laughs> and he's, a, he's not a Christian. He's a classical scholar. And he said, you know, in the ancient world, the adage was the strong do what they will, the weak suffer what they must. That's the dominant belief of the ancient world. But today we don't hold that belief. No one holds that belief. We all think we should protect the weak and the powerless and the elderly and the young. In general, we're we're trying to protect the weak in our societies. Where did that idea come from? He said, well, maybe it came from the Greeks and he studied the Greeks. Nope, didn't come from them. Maybe it came from the Romans. Definitely didn't come from the Romans. (laughs) Where did it come from? It came from the Christians. He He said, maybe it came from the Enlightenment. No, it didn't come from there. It came from the Christians. The Christians brought this idea for the past 2,000 years through time to the present day. It even influenced people like Karl Marx. Karl Marx was interested in the oppressed people. Why? Because he was influenced by a Christian idea that it was good to care about the oppressed people. Interestingly, one of the only aberrations to this in living memory is the Nazis. The Nazis didn't care about oppressed people. They cared about their own people, right? their own race. Well, that's normal. In human history, in the ancient world, Nazism is basically what everybody believed. <laughs> and today, it's so evil we can't even imagine it, right? Because Christianity and the Judeo-Christian worldview has, in fact, triumphed. And so you take these, these Christian and Western ideas, the intersection of virtue and reason, they brought us more than just this one idea, right? They brought us economic prosperity, scientific revolution, representative democracy, hospitals, care for the poor, the end of institutions like slavery, polygamy. Leftist, truly secular ideas brought us things like eugenics, the disintegration of the family. Um, You know, their latest contribution is men and women's sports and the Soviet gulag. Like those, they can have full credit for those. There's no Christian roots to any of them. But... In addition to the enduring truth of God's word, many other old ideas are good ones because they've been refined by time. A lot of the things we're very proud of in our nation's history, uh, things like our Bill of Rights, those were older ideas. The Magna Carta in the 1200s was talking about a jury of your peers, which was an idea they got from the Greeks. So even a lot of the direct language in the Bill of Rights was being written about in English common law in the 1400s. So these ideas didn't just pop out of nowhere because science invented them. These ideas were refined over a long period of time. In the words of C.S. Lewis, most of all, perhaps, we need an intimate knowledge of the past. Not that the past has any magic about it, but because we cannot study the future and yet need something to set against the present to remind us that the basic assumptions have been quite different in different periods and that much which seems certain to the uneducated is merely temporary fashion. A man who has lived in many places is not likely to be deceived by the local errors of his native village. The scholar 
has lived in many times and is therefore in some degree immune from the great cataract of nonsense that pours from the press and the microphone and the social media feed of his own age. I think we've seen that cataract of nonsense, but we have to ground ourselves in the past in order to be able to recognize some of those errors of the present. There's a really interesting idea uh, that, that a guy named G.K. Chesterton, a contemporary of Lewis, came up with. It's called Chesterton's Fence, and it's explained in this. In the matter of reforming things, as distinct from deforming them, there is one plain and simple principle. There exists in such a case a certain institution or law, let us say for the sake of example, a fence or a gate erected across a road. The more modern type of reformer goes gaily up to it and says, I don't see the use of this. Let us clear it away. To which the more intelligent reformer uh, will do well to answer. If you don't see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think. Then if you can come and tell me that you do see the use of it, then I may permit you to clear it away. So if there's something about our tradition that we don't understand, our instinct is, let's get rid of it. I don't know why that was there. Probably just peer pressure from dead people, right? <laughs> what would be an example of an institution in government or in family or in church or anything that people are like, ah, we don't need this anymore? Marriage between a man and a woman, who came up with that? <laughs> that's, that's one. The right to bear arms? Those people had guns that fired four rounds a minute. What do they know? Uh, a couple that popped out to me are things like the, the bicameral legislature, you know, having a, a House and a Senate, and the Electoral College. It's like, if you want to get rid of the Electoral College, I'll hear your argument, but you can't say, I don't even know what that's there for. <laughs> that's not a good argument, right? Um, Maybe uh, some cultural institution, like asking a father's blessing uh, to marry his daughter. Right? Now, it's not in the Bible, but it's a cultural institution. And if you want to get rid of it, you should, you should have a good explanation of why it's there in the first place. The third observation that I have for you is that the kingdom of Christ has grown continuously for the past two millennia, and it is growing still today. Kingdom of Christ has grown continuously for the past two millennia, and it has not stopped growing. There's a good book called The Myth of the Dying Church by a guy named Glenn Stanton. And it points out that in the U.S., the statistics that show that the church is dying away are, you have to break them down a little bit more. What you're actually seeing is that the mainline denominations are dying away. And if you read an article about the dying church in the like New York Times or something, they're going to be like, we're in this super old church, and it's just full of old people, and there are like three of them in here. They haven't been to Wellspring. That's not what our churches look like, but they are in real churches. They're in churches that forsook the gospel a generation ago, or two generations ago, that adopted very liberal theology, that did away with the divinity of Christ, that have the rainbow flags at the door so that they're very welcoming, and those churches are dying. And those churches have you know, historically a lot of people in them. But the evangelical side of the church, the, really just any part of the church that still believes the gospel, that's actually growing. It's keeping pace with population growth. It's growing in absolute numbers. It may be growing in percent terms, maybe not, but it's not shrinking. So the evangelical church, the part of the church that believes God's word, is doing just fine. And we assume that 
we are, you know, that everything in the past was better than today. But if you look at things like church attendance, um, today, weekly church attendance, regular church attendance uh, is about 35% nationally. That might be a little down since COVID, but that's where it was when the book was written in 2019. Okay. Um, at our nation's founding, it was 10%. Right? Because there were a lot of good Christians at the time, but there were also a lot of ignorant, uneducated, backwards people living in the, living in the you know, bush and that didn't go to church. So actually, the high point of church attendance, you won't be surprised, was the 1950s. And it was higher than today. It was a high 40s, maybe 50%. Um, but today, we're not at all-time lows for weekly church attendance, which, if you think about it, we have things like megachurches. Um, which just pointing at them doesn't necessarily suggest that the church is completely washed up and has no energy left. That's because the churches, I just going to go there, the churches have become more worldly to adhere to the mass group to bring our numbers up. Well, some of them certainly have, um, but the ones that have gone the furthest to the left um, have ended up very badly. And actually, Glenn Stanton gives an example in his book of a church, uh, this would have been maybe 2017 or something, so a couple years back, uh, in, it was in Oregon. So it was, a, it was a big, healthy, evangelical, large church, several thousand attendees, so, you know, towards the mega side. And one day, the, uh, the pastor got up on the stage, and he said, uh, we've decided that we're going to change our stance on homosexuality. We're now going to embrace homosexuality. He actually had a lesbian staffer. That is why they made this decision. And the church imploded within, within a few weeks completely fell apart. Everybody left. And they had to lay off all their staff to include the lesbian staffer that they made the policy shift for, right? So it's not always the case that every church in America, I mean, we go to one, right? <laughs> so there are other ones. We're not the only church like this in America. But Paul, you had something. Yeah, if uh, you had said that Bible-believing churches of not I'm going to get to that. I got a full 20 minutes about that. No, 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 that's a great question. I'm glad you're interested in that. Don't leave yet. So that's, of course, the United States. Global Christianity, though, is doing much better honestly, than in the United States. In most of the developing world, Christianity is growing at a faster rate than population growth, um, a couple percentage points faster than population growth. Actually, believe it or not, there are fewer atheists in the world today than in 1970. Um, there are about, uh, I, I don't have the exact numbers, but it was something like 145 million today and 160 million in 1970. This has a lot to do with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, that's a big driver in there, but even in China, atheism is on the decline. And that's projected to continue to decline at least to 2050. So things are not quite as bad as we often perceive they are. This kind of aligns with what uh, Daniel saw uh, as he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's vision in Daniel 2.34. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away. Talking about empires, but just as good a metaphor for the ine inevitable 
progressivism, all the new ideas, right? They all get broken by the rock, which is Christ's kingdom. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And in the days of those kings, he's interpreting later on, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. What gall for Daniel 2,500 years ago plus to predict that his little local religion, and he's living in exile, he's already been captured, his country's bust, and he's predicting that his little local religion is going to fill the whole earth, and he's right. And we're reading about it today. It shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. In the words of Habakkuk, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. To put that in the words of uh, 16th century theologian Theodore Beza, the church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. (laughs) So, Let's look at the demographic trends a little more closely. My fourth point here is that the demographic trends show that the current brand of secularism is an unhealthy and collapsing worldview. Demographic trends show that at least the current version of leftist ideas are not going to last for very long. Because as we noted, bad ideas inevitably get vetoed by reality. So why might these bad ideas of our current culture be unsustainable? Talking expressive individualism, breakdown of family, breakdown of gender, oppressor, victim, you know, oppressed classes. Why might that not be something people believe 50 years from now in its current form? Probably war. Or something crazy happened, a famine, something of that sort. And uh, people tend to convert back to old ideas. Something like that is likely to happen, or a collapse of society. It's not a very stable base to build our society on, so eventually there might be some kind of reset. Things stick around, yeah, okay. Maybe a black swan kind of event. What else? Why might these ideas not stick around, even if our society doesn't collapse? Yeah. I was young. Everybody's Yeah. I think sometimes it's the shock factor too. People just want to see how other people are going to react, and you know if they don't get the reactions that they want, it's not you know, the cool thing to do anymore. I think that kind of wears off. Yeah, I heard back in the '70s it was all the rage to have allergies, and everyone. Oh yes. <laughs> everyone had allergies. Well, and now, now that's you know the really same thing with Dr. Crook. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 Sorry. Yeah. 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 Yeah
So, yeah, to build off of build off what everyone's thinking here, right? So, the left has told teens that their purpose is to be found in the acceptance of others. We now have a mental health crisis among young people in America. There's a 50% increase in youth suicide in the past couple of decades. Catch this. So the American rate of feeling depression and hopelessness in general is about 25%. 25% of Americans will say, I feel depressed or hopeless. Gen Z is 42%. 42% of Gen Z. And that's the most, objectively, the wealthiest generation in human history. Like, they have a lot, right? 18% of Gen Z report thoughts that they would be better off dead in the past two weeks. One in five members of Gen Z think they'd be better off dead in the past two weeks. That's 2% of boomers. There's a big difference there, right? So, and here's, here's another one for you. In 2021 is when this stat came out. So this is about the pandemic. Think about the state of the pandemic in 2021. So a little, like a year into it, 37% of Gen Z reported being so stressed about the pandemic that they struggled to make basic decisions a year into it, despite being at incredibly low risk of dying from COVID uh, as young people, because by definition, they were all young people. If we look at the LGBTQ world, particularly the, the T side, transgender, um, suicidal thoughts among transgender people are 82%. 82% of them have suicidal thoughts. 40% of transgender people attempt suicide. And I, I heard that before. I looked it up again. It's still true. And it does not change after medical transition. No effect. When four in 10 people of a certain category try to kill themselves, that suggests it's really unhealthy. The majority of the country is told that they need to feel bad about their oppressor class, whatever that is, whether it's being a man or being white or being whatever. And it's hard to make the majority feel guilty about something with no opportunity for redemption for the rest of their lives. It's just not a very sustainable worldview. Um, the welfare state, which includes a lot of benefits for middle-class folks too, is going to run out of money. That's, that's a math thing. And once it runs out of money, they will have to start giving less away. And that reduces their ability to offer people the sort of the modern opiate of you know, dependence on the federal government. You mentioned people who detransition. So there's a subreddit community on the internet of people who have detransitioned. So everyone in this group is saying they've either detransitioned or, or had some similar experience. So here's an excerpt from one that just happened to be at the top of the stack when I read it. I did not realize how wrong I was about my so-called identity until I experienced the aftermath of gender reassignment surgery and started working with a non-affirmative therapist that actually challenged and help me process some of the mental health issues that I was struggling with. As someone who grew up in a secular home, finding religion was also an important part of learning to accept myself. It honestly feels like I've woken up from a bad dream. It breaks my heart that I will be stuck in this body for the rest of my life. I was a confused boy that was told the lie that I was trapped in the wrong body. I am now an adult human man that is trapped in a body that looks female mistakes were made. There are 45,000 people in that Reddit group. Um, so a reckoning is coming. And all of these shifts are an open door for the gospel. 
And there are some other positive social trends as well. So a demographic survey um, confirms that conservatives are the only ones who are having children. Uh, the leftist worldview does not uh, lean itself in that direction. So a random sample of 100 conservative adults will raise 208 children. 100 liberal adults will raise a mere 147 children. And we assume that that gap would grow wider over time. There's a lot of growth of alternative media. There was an era in America where whatever Walter Cronkite said was law because he was the only one you could listen to. Um, you, you look back in the 30s when they were pushing hard towards really communism. There were a lot of legitimate communists in the American government. There was no alternative media to push back on. Today, there's a very robust alternative media, which is also growing um, in its influence. Um, I think there are lower barriers to market entry for media companies, right, and for Christian countries with, with the internet. And I think there are some positive trends in the church as well. I'm going to challenge you here. What are some positive trends in the American church? You think and you're right. Um, specifically, Glenn Stanton talks about, uh, in, in his book, Myth of Dying Church, people who are actually struggling with homosexuality are two and a half times more likely to go to a church that disapproves of it than a church that approves of it. Because a church that approves of it has nothing of a Christian worldview to offer them. So yeah, no, you're absolutely right. The truth is still attractive. Yeah. And uh, I think one of the, speaking of homosexuality, realization that uh, they're still human beings and they're still flawed and they're sinners just like all of us and Jesus loves them too. Yeah. And there was an era where that was, it was something that people were focusing down, focusing really hard on, which was an incorrect way of approaching that because it isolated them from us. Yeah. And made them think that we hated them and disgusted by them. And really, they need Jesus just as much as we all do. Yeah. And just the realization that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? We're trying to save people from darkness. We're not trying to label people as the darkness. That's not what people are. Um, the church is, in my experience, in a post-Christian culture, unifying. The biggest Protestant denomination in America, for the first time, is non-denominational. And churches are really kind of splitting into liberal and conservative, right? But then the liberal ones are dying off, and the conservative ones are continuing to grow. I mean, I grew up in a hyper-inward-focused church movement that, like, we hadn't seen anyone saved in a very long time because we were on the last bus to heaven, and there were like 30 of us left on it, right? <laughs> um, that's how I grew up, but look at where I am now, right? I'm in a very interdenominational kind of congregation, which is very similar to a lot of people's experience. Yeah. And, and I think the church has a broader realization now, maybe this is just my own experience, but I think it has a broader realization that it has a duty to serve the poor and the weak, and that we've given too much of that to the federal government, we need to take that back. 
That's a growing realization. Um, and you know, even if rising authoritarianism sends some Christians to jail for using the wrong pronouns, I don't think that's the end of the church in America. I think that's probably going to get some people fired up. <laughs> that might actually be a good thing for us. Not, I'm not wanting that, but that's not the end, just because some bad things can happen to us. I mean, if Hooker Bonhoeffer can be put into a concentration camp mm -hmm. and mobilize the world, yeah. Yeah. the church always grows through persecution. Yeah. Yes. Look at the Roman times. You want to know uh, what saved the modern world? People like to claim that the, the quote unquote anti science approach that they had during that time period was brought down and brought back to life. But they had just lost. Thousands of years of knowledge and history of the destruction of the Roman Empire and the church saved people. It saved society. Yeah. So, point five, the last one I have here in response to the lies, is that the solutions proposed by an unconstrained state are typically worse than the problems. <laughs> the solutions of turning everything over to government that even, you know, we don't even trust as a nation tends to create more problems than um, solutions. Just to go through a couple of these very quickly, overpopulation is kind of a joke because demographers, I mean, not only has it been predicted many times before, but demographers can already see the leveling of the world's population at about 11 billion. That's what it's on track to level at um, because the, there are a lot of reasons for that. I could break it down, it doesn't really matter. Point is, nobody who understands math is worried about overpopulation, just people who are <laughs> secular humanists. Um, global extreme poverty has massively decreased. In the 1820s, global extreme poverty, so living on less than $1.90 a day in today's dollars, was 94%. 94% of people in the world were extremely poor in the 1820s. When I was born, um, 1990, it was 37% of the world's population. Today it is 9%, post-COVID numbers. So 37% to 9% in my lifetime. Um, please don't try to solve global poverty with some totally new solution because <laughs> it's working out pretty well. Whatever we're doing, it's working, right? Um, look, look a little bit uh, at climate change. Uh, specifically, I want to talk about deaths from natural disasters because this is very objective, right? So deaths from natural disasters are at a historic low in absolute and percent terms. In 1920, 26 people in 100,000 globally died from natural disasters every year. Okay? 26 in 100,000, 100 years ago. Today, that is down to 0.1 in 100,000. So your odds of dying from a natural disaster like a hurricane in, in 2020 are 160 times lower than they were 100 years ago, which has to do with decrease in extreme poverty, because it turns out that people who aren't extremely poor survive natural disasters much better. Right? Um, this is not addressed in scripture, so feel free to disagree, but it is my fairly informed opinion, and I'm not going to unpack this at length, but climate change is probably going to, we're going to find that COVID-19 is a pretty instructive metaphor for climate change. But what I mean by that is there were a lot of conservatives with COVID-19 early on who are like, this is not a real thing, it's totally made up. Turns out it wasn't totally made up. But at the same time, there are a lot of people on the left who were proposing solutions, enacted solutions that were way worse than the problem. Like, let's lock the children in school forever, you know, lock them out of school forever. 
Um, and I think that's going to end up being an instructive metaphor uh, where when it comes to climate change, I think there's going to be some of it from what I've seen, but the solutions being proposed are far, far worse than the actual problems that they would solve. So what we're looking at over the next 100 years, if the numbers I'm reading are right, is global GDP should grow by about 400% per capita. GDP per capita should grow by 400%. So we should be four times richer on average than we, in 100 years than we are now. Global warming, as projected, could shave up to 35 percentage points off of that 400%. So you could have been at 400, and then now you're down at like three, you know, 65, whatever it is, growth. The solutions being proposed to combat climate change would shave 200 percentage points off of that 400%, right? So that's, that's from what I'm seeing. Uh, again, that's not in the Bible, but uh, I don't think we need a massive government to solve these sort of problems. So, if I'm pack some lies, if I'm pack some truth, let's talk a little about how this affects the truth, the church. And I want to I wanna get to two things. Um, and part of this is going to get to what Paul asked about earlier, okay? I think there are two very significant problems that the church does need to deal with, okay? Two big problems which pose a serious threat to our nation. Number one, the young are indoctrinated with a secular worldview. That is my number one problem that our nation and our church has to deal with. As of 2020, among young adults who attend church regularly as a teenager, so think kids who come to Wellspring Sunday School, right? 66% will stop for at least a year between 18 and 22. That's actually, believe it or not, an improvement from 2007 when that number was at 70%. So we're retaining about 34% of our young people. We're retaining roughly one in three of our young people as a church. Now, some of them will come back because the trends show that some of them do come back. So maybe in the end, we retain 50%, okay, when it all comes out in the wash. That's not good enough. Retaining 50% of our kids, that's not good enough. So why are we losing them? Let me just put that question to you. Why are Christian young people, the church is doing okay because we're bringing in some converts too, but the people we're raising in church are walking away. Why is that? Paul. World's got a lot of time to teach them stuff. What else? Yeah, which parents give them access to by definition, right? Yeah. And sometimes, and I think a lot of you have, have learned this, you know, along with me in this journey, like we assume the errors of the last generation, and when we assume our kids are facing those errors when really they're facing a whole new set of errors that we're not necessarily equipped to deal with. Yeah. I really believe human beings uh, change each generation. There's a kind of a rotation of ideas. There's spiritual revivals every fifth generation and so on. Um, but we live in this world that's changed so much in the last few years where, you know, we didn't have the internet. 
condo. We didn't have real tracking and, and, and uh, all the technology, facial recognition, artificial intelligence, all the stuff that an outside entity, a government, whatever, can use to control populations and talk and dialogue and everything else. That wasn't in place before. That's my question. That's kind of scary. So you think technology is a contributor? Yeah. Um, it, but see, I think most of this stuff can be used in both directions, though. The church has always harnessed technology. The church harnessed the power of the printing press. The church harnessed the power of the radio. Um, I, my sister and I are in the process of like pulling literally tens of thousands of people or influencing tens of thousands of people in hyper-fundamentalist, super unhealthy churches and pulling them back into the mainstream conservative Christian fold through Facebook. Um, that's, you know, the reach that we've had is incredible. Like we're, we're breaking open cults using this technology. So it, it cuts both ways. Um, and if the church learns how to use things, and I know a lot of particularly bigger churches are thinking about how do we use data and Google ads to bring people into a marriage seminar, you know, in our church that funnels them into our church. So it, it, can, it can be a wash if the church stays with the program and learns how to fight using the weapons that the culture is using. Yeah. But let me just ask the question to you as a corollary. What do you think we should be doing to keep them? So we talked about some of the problems, but what should we do to maximize the chance that we don't lose 50% of our young people? Yeah, 16,000 hours, K through 12. Sixteen thousand. I think it's a it's a heart connection thing because you yeah. can homeschool your kids and never never really get to the heart sure. of the matter, you know. And so I think it's about connecting on a deep level and not surface level. You gotta know what you believe and why. Yeah. I think the kids though the the family's gotta be the spiritual leader. Mm -hmm. You can't just turn them over to the church. Either. Sure. Like, here, here's Scott doesn't have enough time. <laughs> but here's Wednesday night. Yeah. Here's Sunday, learn about God. And that's it. You know, I think that as fathers, we've got to be spiritually sound. And I think in the male role, as, as we talked last week, yeah. women are becoming like men. And the grandparents bring in that traditional family. Yeah. Pastor Scott. Good friends who loved me, their friends loved, you know, my parents' kids well, and then um, my parents sacrificed for what they believed. Um, financially, the time, and they and they brought me along on that journey. If they hadn't done those two things, I don't think I'd be here. I totally agree with that because I think a lot of kids see their parents call themselves Christians, but it's never actually put into action. Maybe decide to worship this on Sunday morning. They never have to strike out against the culture to stand up, you know, yeah. for, for what they believe. So they they really are kind of stealth in their Christianity. Yeah. So let me unpack this uh, a little bit more. 
and I, I had some awareness of this, but the book that Flav recommended to me the other day, uh, The Battle for the American Mind, really made my awareness much deeper of it. So the secularists played a long game to take over an institution that they took over very, very deliberately about 100 years ago, the American public school system, right? Um, they have dominated that, that institution for decades, ever since. If we look at political party affiliation as a proxy for cultural beliefs um, about, of high school teachers in America, about 85% are Democratic. Compare that to Hollywood, which is about 90%. So basically, your high school teacher average is about the same as your average Hollywood actor. Okay? That's a big problem. Because both of those groups, actually, we are letting the culture catechize our children. Like when they come home from the high school, they're going to watch Chris Evans, right? So they're getting it from both directions. 16,000 hours, like I said, K through 12. Um, and the irony here, the sad irony to me, is that the secularists aren't having children. They're not going through the pain of that themselves but then they're raising ours. And let me put this, take it out of my own words, put it in the words of one of the progressives who with John Dewey worked very diligently to get them into the schools. Charles Potter, 1928. What can theistic Sunday school meeting for one hour a week do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teaching? It was very deliberate. It was a smart play. It was a long play. And originally, they weren't taking us to cultural Marxism. They didn't know where they were going. They took us to this happy-go-lucky American exceptionalism that half of the conservatives thinks what we lost. But they took out the Western Christian worldview. They took out integrated subjects that were based around God's word, and they replaced it with siloed knowledge, and they replaced it with watered-down values instead of virtues. Values, what are your values? What are your values? As opposed to virtues that were refined through a Western Christian tradition, right? So let's look at retention of our young people by their education type. So looking at church attendance of three times a month or more, we're retaining about 65%. Now this is, it would be higher because some of them leave and come back, right? So retaining about 65% of Christian schooled kids, 65% of homeschooled kids, 90% of kids who get a classical Christian education, and it's about 30% of kids who go to public school is what we're retaining as a church. Now, there's certainly some self-selection, like the Christians who tend to be more committed parents and um, you know, are spending more time around the dinner table with their parent or their kids are also the ones who are sending their kids to a classical Christian school, right? So uh, I don't want to diminish that. But even when you control for what they can control for, for family type, and like his mom and dad, both are Christian, that kind of stuff, you still see those discrepancies uh, persist. But let's look a layer deeper. So there's this test for worldview that's called the Peers Worldview Test. It's you know, created by Christians. And they've been testing this over the past 30 years, okay? it's back to the 1980s. And so the test is administered roughly on a scale of 1 to 100. 100 is a, like a super biblical worldview. Zero is super secular worldview. Um, over the past 30 years, the average kid in, Christian kid in a public school, okay, 30 years ago, the average Christian kid in a public school scored a 40. So they were mildly Christian worldview. Today, they score a negative five, 
which takes them below secular into Marxism, which goes down for another negative 50 points. Okay? So the average Christian kid has gone from a 40 on the scale to a negative 5 in, since the 1980s. Um, traditional Christian schools do a bit better, but graduates end up with a, a, a solidly secular worldviews of about 10 on that scale. And they've also trended down with the public school kids. Um, classical Christian schools uh, score about six, 75, and homeschoolers score moderate Christian worldviews of about 50. And the homeschoolers and classical Christian have stayed steady, whereas the traditional Christian and public school have declined with one being a little better than the other. Yeah, Stephen. If that's all the case, and there's a lot of numbers in there, how is the evangelical tradition still growing adequately to keep up with population growth? Yeah, great question. I think it's just because we're also bringing in converts. So we're not retaining all of our kids, but we're bringing in people who weren't Christians in the first place. So those two things more or less cancel each other out, and we're staying on pace with population growth. So we're losing that 16,000 hours in many cases to teach kids what, what they ought to value, virtue, and not merely to teach them what, how to make a living, right? Because in an ideal form, we're teaching kids in that time, or at least a lot of time around it, on both ends of it, what they should value and not simply how to do stuff in the world, right? Take it from an ex-evangelical who was writing in some significant leftist magazine like Slate or something. Eventually, those kids, she's talking about herself as an evangelical growing up, um, that they were raising grew up. We'd grown up in this really stringent environment that had no flexibility, and we'd specifically grown up increasingly in churches that demanded an absolute extraordinary amount of cognitive dissonance. Many of us were going to public school. We're exposed to different ways of living. We're exposed to people who have different ideas about how the world should be. We see that ideas like purity and no sex before marriage, all of these really extreme tenets, are not necessary in order to be a good person. For so many evangelicals who grow up and leave the church, we just can't bear the cognitive dissonance anymore. Here's the sad thing. Like Steve said about smoking, sin has pleasure for a season, and then a few decades down the road, depending on the magnitude of the sin, it wrecks you. But the young people are not hanging out with the wrecked ex, you know, old sinners. They're hanging out only with the, the people in the season where it's a lot of fun, right? And that's the people that they're being told are wrong at, at home and at church, um, and they're not seeing it. Some are. Some are seeing it. Some are holding on. But many are not. The Bible talks about, you know, Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This word instruction in the Greek is really interesting. Paideia. Paideia is, according to Strong's, the whole training and education of children, which relates to the cultivation of mind and morals, and employs this purpose, um, for this purpose, commands and admonitions, reproof and punishment. It also includes the training and care of the body. It's a very comprehensive sort of term. That's what fathers are charged to bring their children up with. Um, and again, I, I've said this before, I'll say it again. The Bible doesn't say you have to homeschool your kids. I'm not going to say that because I'm not going to add to the Bible. But I can share the facts of our culture. And so Deuteronomy 6, 7, um, of course, we've heard this before too, right? You should teach them diligently to your children, talking about the law, 
Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. So that's what I think is the, the first biggest threat. The second grave threat to the church, I'm going to shift gears entirely, is that the church lacks a moral imagination. The church lacks a moral imagination. What is a moral imagination? It is a better world that you can conceive of that you believe is actually possible. So you don't have to be a Christian to have a moral imagination. The Greeks, they had a moral imagination. They said, what would it be like if a society governed itself? That was a crazy new idea. Democracy. Societies didn't govern themselves. Um, now, some, actually, some of that did happen in the Old Testament, but Greeks didn't know about that. So they came up with this idea, right? Moral imagination. Um, now, of course, as it turns out, self-governance is not enough to sustain a society. So the Greek society, even though they came up with this cool idea, it, it collapsed in the end, right? Um, but the Christians who started the abolition movement, what would it be like if slavery, which has existed for all of human history, didn't exist anymore? Christians came up with that, and they had to have a pretty big moral imagination in order to come up with that idea. The men and women who made America had moral imaginations. What would it be like if we had a nation that was a city set on a hill? That's a pretty big imagination. But we, the church, don't really. And why might that be the case? I mean, I could ask you, but I, I think we kind of know, and the stats are pretty clear, of evangelicals, 48% are confident that Jesus will return within 40 years. 48%. Um, and research from the National Association of Evangelicals shows that 65% of evangelicals are premillennial. Um, and that means that they think things are going to get worse and worse before Jesus comes back. Technically, that's not what the term means, but that's what it's associated with. So fully half of the most conservative Christians in our society expect that progress is impossible. Let's stop and consider the irony of this for a second. Leftists like Chris Evans have a worldview that is so hollow that they have to change it out every 25 years and rebuild it from the ruins. We have a worldview that has been sustained for 2,000 years of human history and has just grown every single year. Chris Evans says we're going to die out like the dinosaurs, and we agree with him. That is crazy. It's not surprising that he believes that. It's surprising that we believe that. So, look, eschatology is, is, a, is a whole big question, right? I'm not going to try to unpack that. But I will say that the church has been pretty convinced that Jesus was about to come back a few times before. Okay, 418 was a big year for this. And then it was the year 6,000. When is the year 6,000? Well, it's the Jewish calendar. So the year 6,000 had to be recalculated a few times. It ended up being uh, the year 400, the year 700, and then again in the year 800. And then there was the year 1,000 and the year 1,033, which is, was one interpretation of the millennial reign. I went to a castle from the 1400s um, in the Czech Republic. It had a big apocalyptic mural on the wall. And the guide explained, well, they, they saw some local earthquakes as being a sign of the book of Revelation that the end of times, the end of days was upon them. So I get it. Most Christians today are believing that things are going to get worse and worse before Jesus comes back. Understood. Okay, I'm not going to bother to address that. And I'm not going to pretend like I have some watertight, you know, take on the book of Revelation anyways, right? I'm, I'm not going to 
pretend that. But I would challenge us to not use our eschatology as an excuse for inaction. And I would give you an example, Martin Luther. As soon as one delves into the study of Luther's works, especially his sermons and expositions of the Bible, one is rather fascinated by the overwhelming presence of eschatological thought in what this great reformer had to say. The crux of the matter is not to be found simply in his references to the papacy as the Antichrist, nor in his clear warnings against the Turks. So he believed that the Pope was the Antichrist, the Turks were prophesied as like one of the beasts in Revelation, the world was about to end. Luther once remarked that a whole book could be filled with the signs that happened in his day and that pointed to the approaching end of the world. He thought that the worst sign was that human beings had never been so earthly-minded as right now. Hardly anyone cared about eternal salvation. Also, natural occurrences, such as storms and floods, were certain signs of the time. And scripture was the only key for the interpretation of the phenomena in the sky and astronomical conceptions. So he believed that uh, when Gregory VII became Pope in 1073, that was the releasing of Satan and the Antichrist, and he had this whole thing worked out, right? But... Despite that, Luther still had a moral imagination. Despite the fact that he was convinced the, five, the 1500s were the end of the world, he still took on a corrupt version of the church and beat them. He nailed those 95 theses. He got things turned around, even though he thought it was the end of time. Now, what are the people who founded America? So I dug into this, and I was rather shocked, honestly, to learn. I had no idea. Pretty much everyone who founded America was post-mill, which meant they thought things were going to get better and better. John Calvin thought this. John Wesley thought this. Jonathan Edwards thought this. George Whitfield thought this. Now, they had nuances and different takes, and some of them said, hey, things are going to get better and better and better, but then eventually Satan's going to fight back, there's going to be Armageddon, and then Jesus comes back. Right? So they had different takes. But in general, they saw the trajectory like this. And we're like, what fools? How could they think that? Well, what happened in their era? They built America. They had the first Great Awakening. They had the second Great Awakening. They did things that were impossible. They eliminated slavery. They eliminated, you know, in many cases, prostitution. They eliminated a lot of institutions that we, you know, take for granted or evil today. And you can hear it best in the hymns of Isaac Watts, who was 1700s hymn writer, post-millennialist to the max, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth its successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. Or, one you all know, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Contrast this with the songs I grew up singing, Hold the fort, for I am coming. Jesus signals still, Wave the answer back to heaven, by thy grace we will. When Isaac Watts thought the church was going to take over the world, it did. When we thought we would just had a fort to hold, that's what we did. So in the, in the words of one um, guy from the, the Presbyterian Church of America, the conservative side, he said, as far as predicting the approximate time of Christ's second advent is concerned, I have resigned from the planning committee and have joined the welcoming committee. Y'all, we got too many people on the planning committee. We need to get some people ready to receive Christ. 
Because make no mistake, if Christ tarries, as he has many times before, the secular worldview will collapse. But what will replace it? Will we have a healthy, robust church with well-catechized young people to replace it? Or will we just be trying to hold the fort, a fort that we gave up to progressives a long time ago? Let's play a little game. What is the best thing you could imagine for the church in the, in the foreseeable future, in the next hundred years? What could happen? Jesus coming back. Or builds a parallel system that completely yeah. eclipses it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, a lot of alternative schooling is. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Sure. I would love to see the people in San Francisco, Baltimore, various cities like that come and learn from Warren Gardner. I'm working on that. That's my job. This is how you do homeschooling. Yeah. And not like you're doing. So I think we have a template to really multiply that. You know, zooming out a little bit from the American church, seeing the Iranians who are part of at least close to the fastest growing church in the world. Hmm. They, I've read several several different things that they believe that they're going to be the ones that evangelize um, uh, Israel and, and Jews. I, I think being a part of that would be pretty awesome. Yeah, the global church eclipsing us and coming back and being missionaries yeah. to America, right? It's kind of a paradox here because you read like Paul, he lived his life like Jesus could come back at any time. But that forced him to say, let's get as many people saved as, as we can. And I think, and I think part of the, I see what you're saying because you can get this mentality. Uh, and, and the Bible says that nobody knows the day or the hour he's coming back. We can see the signs. And Jesus told us we, we need to, you know, we need to be ready. But some people sit there and say, okay, I'm going to get ready. I'm saved. I'm going to hunker down. I'm going to get my, my food and uh, my, you know, for, and, and ready for the zombie apocalypse and all this stuff like this. Yeah. And, and so they get that mentality when the fact that we know a bunch of people that aren't going to go to heaven uh, and that should cause us to be out there sharing the gospel more. And if, yeah. If some of that, some of that's not some of that's not happening within the church because they've got this, uh, and because I, I understand what you're saying, because I've battled with that. 
Yeah, and you, you've, you've gone out and done mission work yourself. I mean, you, you've lived this, the sort of Martin Luther, like, oh, it's probably the end of the world, but we're going to get out and do some work so that when Jesus comes back, good and faithful servant is what he'll have to say. Yeah. to see the young people who are saved to be in the public school witnessing to their friends and setting an example so that the staff there sees them and sees that they're different and they can be a witness and a light there. We're going to have to work overtime to make them hey, lights. It yeah. It can happen. We've got to be pretty strategic about how we pull that one off. Yeah. Jake. Sally forth from the wall. We'll be not charged into the enemy's territory. Every time a siege throughout history, when they close those gates and they never sally forth, it was over. It was lost. It was game over. We must sally forth. Well, and let me build on that with this closing thought. So when Nehemiah went back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, he needed two groups of people. He needed men with swords and men with shovels. People need to build and people need to fight. And I think as conservatives, a lot of times we get excited about the people who are going out and fighting the cultural battles. That's important. I seem to recall there was a Supreme Court victory the other day that was not supposed to happen in my lifetime. Roe versus Wade, right? But we have probably too many people focused on fighting. Uh, of course, many that are just sitting around. Yeah, challenge, challenge those. But we also need people to look towards the future and say, what are we doing to build a world that would actually be better for our great, great, great grandchildren. Because who knows, maybe we will have them. Thank you so much for coming out. Thanks for participating in this. Let me just close this out in a word of prayer. Dear God, thank you for your kingdom, the rock which has just been growing, and the world loses track of how great you are and what you've done. But let us not lose track. Let us see your movement through human history. Consider ourselves small and grateful to be your servants. God, give us the bravery to wield our sword, to rescue people from the darkness, not to view them as the darkness. And give us the wisdom and strategic insight to see a future where your kingdom keeps getting bigger and what we can do to prepare for that possibility as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.